0: I'm Bridget Schulte. This season of Better Life Lab, we've been taking a close look at work stress and the future of work and well-being. Frankly, parts of the American economy are looking tough for many workers. My guests have used the word dystopian more than once. Workplace discontent is high and people are quitting their jobs at record rates. We know what many of the problems are, Yet the fixes are not so simple.
1: You can't just say, hey, 55-year-old coal miner whose coal mine shut down. What you really ought to do is go be a programmer in San Francisco.
0: So on this closing episode of our season, we're asking, how do we create an equitable future of work and well-being? Are bad jobs just an inherent part of the workplace? Or can we actually do what it takes to make the jobs of the future good jobs? big enough to support human life. We know it will take everyone to build this better future. On past episodes, we've heard from workers and advocates about how we need to help workers build their voice and their power. On this episode, we're talking with three people from very different sectors who also have a role to play in shaping that future in business and on Capitol Hill. My guests include Congressman Jim Himes and private equity investor Warren Valdmanis. We'll also talk with Zeynep Tone, MIT professor and president of the Good Jobs Institute. Stay with us. It's Better Life Lab. I'm Bridget Schulte. With automation, globalization, and growing inequalities in our society, the American workplace is changing rapidly. If these trends continue, the future may be grim for many of us. So can we actually shape a better future of work and well-being? Can we make it more sustaining and more equitable? For all of us who work for a living, that's the big question. It's why I wanted to talk with Connecticut Congressman Jim Himes. He chairs the House Select Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness and Growth. I started by asking Congressman Himes about the biggest challenges now facing us as workers, human workers not robots.
1: The fact is, today in America, we see more economic disparity than we have arguably in a century, maybe ever, depending on how you Mm -hmm. measure it. Um, And and when I say disparity, I mean... uh, a small group of Americans, less than 10%, doing extraordinarily well, wealth that, right. you know, we wouldn't have conceived of a generation ago. The middle class really struggling to hang on. Then, of course, you know, uh, the lower income folks really, really struggling. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But in my opinion, um, the big reason, and again, there are a lot of reasons, but the big reason is the fact that if we just reflect over our own lifetime, so I'm, I'm, I'm 55, um, you know, mm-hmm. when I was born, um, we lived in an America where my grandfather, um, he happened to have gone to college, but if he hadn't gone to college, um, he would have walked down the street to the local mill. You know, an awful lot of American towns had local mills or local plants. Uh, without a high school degree, gotten a job that would have made him middle class. You know, might have had right. some benefits, might have been unionized. Um, those mills and those plants aren't there anymore uh, for a couple yeah. of reasons. Uh, one, uh, over time, they've moved to lower wage countries: China, Mexico, South America, etc. Two, we've seen a massive rise, of course, and this this points to the future of work, um, of automation, of all mm-hmm. of those tasks that you could do when you had very little education, which probably had to do with your muscles, um, now mm-hmm. being done by machines. Mm-hmm.
0: So, you know, we've talked with uh, MIT economist David Otter, and when he looks out at sort of projecting what the, you know, where we are now and and kind of where we could go, What he worries about is, you know, automation will certainly destroy jobs, but it will create others. And so for him, the question is, will these new jobs be big enough to support human life? And if you look at the service jobs that have been created really since the 70s and on, the answer is no. Service jobs, the growth in uh, contracting out in gig jobs, and that unless we figure out what to do, we are setting ourselves up for an economy of what he calls the servers and the served, uh, which doesn't sound like a, a you know, a, a recipe for uh, for the American dream.
1: Yeah, th- that, that's exactly right. And, you know, we see it today. We see it today. You know, the, the reason Palo Alto and, you know, seven other towns and regions of the country are as wealthy as they are is that those, the folks that live there, are creating the machines. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to draw a little bit of a cartoon here, but it's not too much of a cartoon. They're the ones creating the software and the machines. Um, whereas in the rest of the country, an awful lot of people are being displaced by those machines. And I think mm-hmm. the answer, Bridget, because cause the MIT economist you talked to is exactly right. Um, and in fact, y- y- you know, the story of technology is not of net devastation of jobs. Generally speaking, the story of technology is actually of the creation of more jobs. Right. The, the problem for us is that those jobs are very, very different jobs. So you mm-hmm. can't just say, "Hey, fifty-five-year-old coal miner whose coal mine shut down." What you really ought to do is go be a programmer in San Francisco. I mean, when you right. sort of frame right. it that way, you sort of see the absurdity of that. And it's mm-hmm. not just training. And, and 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 let's be let's be clear here: education and training is at the core of the, of, of the solution here, along with you know rethinking the values around what what work we value but you know when you get too economically minded about this and you say well 55 year old coal guy if we just retrain you if we have a really good training program you can go to San Francisco and program well you know and, and of course I'm I'm painting a, a very broad I'm painting with a very broad brush here but you know 55 year old coal miner in, in a town in West Virginia probably grew up there grandma's probably buried on the hill um, right. child care is probably provided by Aunt may you know when the car mm-hmm. breaks down your cousin helps you fix it and so you've exactly. got all of these you know in, in Communities that are not San Francisco, New York, Austin, et cetera. You know, you've got all these informal support mechanisms that are very, very hard to leave behind, and right. and so yeah, training is part of it, but 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 so is uh, here, here's here's something that we don't think or talk enough about. So is thinking about how we value things that machines can't do. You know, we're a long way from being in a world where a robot or an artificial intelligence is going to be able to provide the kind of empathy and human warmth that we want people to have, uh, whether they're at the DMV or in a nursing home. And yet, mm-hmm. we the market decides today that if you work in a nursing home, you're probably making something in the neighborhood of minimum wage. And so there is yeah. going to need to be a little bit of a value shift about what sort of value we put on those things that computers and artificial intelligence simply can't do.
0: So so that leads to so so how do we do that? You know, what needs to change and how do we change that? For the last 40-50 years the prevailing thinking is the market will fix it all. Just leave it to the market. And I think what's really clear um, is that the market isn't fixing it and if we leave it to the market we will have more of a kind of a blade runner kind of future. So what needs to change? How do we how do we value those for instance care jobs that do pay poverty wages? You know, you talk about education and training being one piece of it. How do we make those jobs better jobs? How do we create a safety net for people who are automated out that coal miner who, you know, is not necessarily going to become a programmer? What needs to change?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so let's not completely throw the market out the door. Uh, you you ask a really important question, but let's not completely throw the market out the door because the reality is that the market is the engine, which does create entirely new jobs, categories of jobs that, you know, that, 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 that we're not even thinking about today. So when, when we were kids, if, if, We'd looked at each other and said, uh, you know, there's going to be tens of thousands of uh, yoga instructor jobs, uh, um, uh, photovoltaic installation jobs. We, we sort of want to look at each other and said, wait what, wait, what are those things? And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, the market does create lots of new opportunities. The, where I worry is where I think you were pointing with your question, which is, what about at the bottom end? Because those jobs, you know, whether they're lower end service jobs, you know, at the desk of a or at the, the counter of a, of a factory fast food restaurant or being an orderly mm. in a nursing home, those jobs that are that are low paying and insecure. And by the way, most prone to being the next jobs that are displaced by technology. You know, I've, I've been in McDonald's now where they're actually, uh, there may be a person there, but they're not at the front counter. Um, I, yeah. I think they're, Now you have the market intervention answer, right? And and we're just going to look at ourselves as a society and say we have created wealth in this in this society beyond the dreams of Croesus. You know, I mean, even Mm. you know the functionality that is on an iPhone that can be owned by most Americans is something that you know a a, a 19th century European monarch couldn't have bought. You know, so because we've created this immense wealth, and and this is maybe the the left wing perspective on things, but I also happen to think it's right. We're going to say, look. In a society like that, we are going to guarantee everyone a minimum basic level of dignity. You know, Mm -hmm. you're not going to leave your job at the nursing home and and decide whether you should buy that can of tuna fish or pay your rent. You know, we ought to Mm -hmm. we ought to all be decent enough people to say that in a society this wealthy, we 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 should guarantee people a minimum level of dignity, and that points you in the direction of you know minimum wage and and a robust safety net. And 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 by the way, my friends on the right my Republican friends who say, oh my gosh, that's just big, you know, expanding the role of the state. And the answer is yes, it is. Yes, it is. Because, you know, more and more the market, which you so value, and by the way, I appreciate that you so value, is creating terrible outcomes for most people. So yes, we do need to do this. And by the way, chip in around ideas about efficiency. As a Democrat, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to tell you that, you know, the Medicare, the social security system, Medicaid, you know, all of those various safety net programs are 21st century models of efficiency. They're not. Right. So let's, mm-hmm. let's focus on making them better, more efficient, but let's, let's agree on the value that in today's society, we ought to be comfortable with nobody living in abject poverty.
0: So in terms of like, you know, nuts and bolts, you know, you talk about minimum wage. Are you also talking about, say, universal basic income? That's also part of future of work conversations. You've written essays on uh, op-eds on child care, how critical having care infrastructure is uh, to enable people to work and support them. Um, You know, you've had economists testify before your committee talking about the tax rate, that basically labor is taxed at 25 percent and software and technology at 0%, which gives companies more impetus to invest in uh, software and technology and fire workers. You know, so, so are you talking about changing tax rates, about investing in childcare and paid leave, as, as well as education and training?
1: Yeah, yeah. Let's take a couple of those ideas that you threw out there. Universal basic income, really interesting concept. Again, if you, if you believe that markets work, but that today markets, because of technology and you know, economies of scale and network effects, you know, are, are concentrating wealth in very, very small hands, and, and a lot of people are getting left behind, it shouldn't be too much of a leap to say that there ought to be a redistributive mechanism Towards those people who are left behind. Now, UBI is a little bit exotic, right? And, and here's why I sort of object to that conversation right now. There are so many things we could do that are not in any way, shape, or form exotic, but are simply just bringing up the quality of, and the efficiency of our safety net to quite frankly 20th century standards, as 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 other countries are, uh, demonstrate to us. Um, and yes, yeah, some of them you talked about the tax code. Some of them, some of these ought to be relatively easy shifts. You know, the the, the tax code is not something that you know necessarily speaks to uh, the average you know American out there who's struggling uh, to get to work but yes you know um, I, there was an interesting little story we had a we, we were talking with a bunch of business leaders and and um, one of the business leaders said yeah look your tax code you know you're taxing the return on capital at capital gains rate or dividends rate which is a lot lower than what you tax the the fruits of labor which are taxed at right. ordinary income rates that's a clear distortion in the market and oh by the way it's a market where and 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 he didn't say this in any way in any condescending way but he said, people are messy. You know, people people mm-hmm, get sick. Mm-hmm. You know, they get angry. Yeah. They're in bad moods. They don't show up for work. They fight with each other. People are messy. Yeah. Now, that, yeah. that could be right. sort of interpreted to be condescending. But let's face it. It's also true. We're, you know, we're, 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 we're messy. Um, and so the point is that there's all these incentives out there to try to take humans out of the equation. And we should really be thoughtful about that. But, but the point I really want to make um, is, is, look, we don't need to go to the exoticism of UBI to say, how is it possible that in 21st century... America we say USA USA the you know the best gun the most exceptional country on the planet how it is how is it possible that we can't provide basic health care to people mm-hmm. you know and mm-hmm. it's not that we can't do it and here 's where the Republicans say oh you're a European socialist son of a gun you know lots of countries in Europe do it in in, yeah. in Great Britain um, you know I'm not sure anybody going to say that the National Health Service is a perfect model of efficient health care delivery but you know what the right-wing party the conservatives in Great Britain go to the the mat for the National mm-hmm. Health Service, which is something way to the left of anything Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is is, is promoting in this country. Um, and right. so my point is that the models are out there. We don't need to talk about UBI before we look each other in the eye and say, my gosh, let's figure out a way to give every American access to decent health care. And by the way, let's figure out how to give every American access to some form of child care. Um, mm-hmm. Both of those things have the virtue of satisfying. Our moral sense, but they're also just cold, hard-nosed, economically smart. You know, A single mom who doesn't have good access to childcare is not going to be in the labor force. So again, mm. I, I get a little animated about UBI. Let's talk about it. Let's think about it. Let's talk to Andrew Yang about it. But son of a gun, in 21st century America, we ought to have a safety net that doesn't look like something out of Dickens. Mm.
0: So for the last question then is, uh, do we have the political will? You know, given where we are politically now, given you know, on your committee, you're up there in in, in Congress. You know, uh, do we have the political will to to make some of these changes? To you know, to talk about portable benefits, to talk about health
1: care following the worker and
0: not being tied to jobs.
1: Um, despite all the evidence, uh, I'm an optimist on the answer to that question. And I'll tell you why, um, you know, as we speak right now, we're in one of the most broken Congresses I've ever experienced. What happened on January 6th, um, destroyed the relationships that made this institution such as it did actually work. Mm. Now we're starting to recover from that, but here's why I'm an optimist. Um, and, and this is a really interesting thing to me. There is a reason Why the right, which is, you know, the Republican Party in the last, at least as long as I've been doing this, a decade and a half, has stood in the way of reform of our safety net. That wasn't always true, by the way. Remember, the earned income tax credit, which is one of the most, you know, powerful poverty alleviation programs we have, was actually signed into law by a Republican president. But the reason the Republican... story to the american people is that democrats are scary socialists who really care about critical race theory and want transgender women to compete in girls sports and please let's talk a lot more about transgender women in girls sports and CRT and critical race theory and they want you know why they you know why that's their story because americans across the political spectrum including lots of people who are wearing red Make America Great Again hats agree with us on the economy. When we say Mm. we want a higher minimum wage, Trumpsters in wherever they live agree. The right wing, um, the American people are absolutely with the Democratic Party on the economically. Let's use the word populist. That's a that's a that's a laden word, but when it comes to saying we're going to do better by you with respect to the dignity of retirement, access to health care, housing, options for your kids. We, 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 when those things pull off the charts, which is why, of course, the Republican Party really wants to point the finger at us and say we're all about critical race theory. So why am I an optimist? Because Lincoln said it. You know, public sentiment is everything. And public sentiment is very, very much on the side of, you know, doing better by our most marginalized people.
0: All right. Well, Congressman, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk with us today. You know, I you know, I guess I do. I do wonder, though. You know, the polls show it. You know, the polls show great support for things like paid family leave or childcare. Or, you know, uh, there is a, a great sense that the, the economy is not working for people, and and real frustration. But there's also a sense then that. Uh, you know, lawmakers are not working for people because they're not delivering on these things. So yes, public opinion is everything, but, you know, but but it's not if it doesn't seem to drive action.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, let me say two quick things to that. Number one, absolutely right. Um, and you don't need to poke around too hard to see how much more we have yet to do on all of the things that we're talking about. But I always tell my activist friends or my friends— um, Don't ever lose sight of the progress that was made. I mean, just in the limited time I've been here, the Affordable Care Act, which was at the end of the day, it was an incremental... Uh, tweak of our healthcare system. Mm -hmm. There's now 25-ish million Americans, 25 million Americans running around with health insurance that didn't have it 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Um, You know, we demonstrated through the American Recovery Program, which my Republican friends are dancing all over right now, we demonstrated that with an uptick in the child tax credit, we can cut child poverty in half. And we did. Sadly, that Mm -hmm. program uh, uh, expired. But um, there has been progress in this regard. My worry, it's, it's a little bit like my worry around climate change. We see progress. We see technology and and, and good things happening. They're just not happening at the rate that the American people deserve those things to happen. So, you know, the displacement of jobs by technology is happening faster than our ability to deal with the economic pain that emerges from that.
0: Congressman Jim Himes, Democrat of Connecticut. He serves as chair of the House Select Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness and Growth. The view from thought leaders in private equity and MIT, after this. I'm Bridget Schulte. You're listening to Better Life Lab. This episode, I'm talking about what it will actually take to ensure a better, more equitable future of work and well-being in America. Next, we're joined by two real thought leaders from the business side of things. Zeynep Tone is the author of The Good Job Strategy and a professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management. And Warren Valdmanis is a high-flying private equity investor. After a successful career at Bain Capital, where he helped start the firm's first social impact fund... Warren is now a partner at Two Sigma Impact, which strives to apply the scientific method to investing in business. Zeynep and Warren recently joined me for a freewheeling and often surprising conversation on the future of good jobs and why they make smart sense, not just for workers, but for business leaders. to say you blew my mind when I heard you talk because I have not heard somebody from private equity. You think of these horror stories of people coming in and in the name of efficiency, we're going to rejigger companies and then you get people laid off and tales of misery and woe. And to hear that somebody from private equity is interested in investing in good jobs Tell me what you're doing. How did that start?
2: There's no question that private equity has, in some circumstances, had a negative impact on workers. But I think it would be a mistake to point the finger uh, just at private equity when it comes to what's happened to the workforce over the past, frankly, 40 or 50 years. Mm. Um, We have seen a long-term trend in America uh, towards trying to slow down the workforce. Um, Companies cutting jobs, companies cutting uh, benefits, companies outsourcing jobs, and I think that this all came from a view in the seventies that American companies were in some way fat, that they needed to trim down. Mm. And I think, I fear that we've done our job too well. The biggest problem is not that companies have too many workers. The biggest problem that almost every company that we talk to has is they don't have enough motivated, skilled workers to grow.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and so uh, my view is that we're at a really interesting inflection point and private equity can play an important role in all of this where we focus on creating good jobs as opposed to having workers or their or their benefits.
3: Right. Absolutely. So it wasn't just the fat that had to be trimmed down. I think we also had a view to see workers as just a cost to be minimized. Mm, and, mm-hmm. and that view was a driving force toward creating so many bad jobs
0: in the economy. So Zeynep, the narrative that we tell ourselves is that there just has to be some level of crummy jobs. So many people think that's just the way it's got to be. You know, these are entry-level jobs and that the only thing people can do is just, well, move out.
3: Absolutely not. First <laughs> of all, 53 million Americans before the pandemic worked in these called, so-called bad jobs, right? Low-paying mm-hmm. jobs. Retail
0: so, and service and those kind of hourly, insecure kind of jobs, that's what you mean?
3: Mostly service industries, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and we can't have a functioning economy where 44% of the workforce is in these bad jobs. So Mm -hmm. it's it's bad for our economy, and bad jobs are not just bad for workers in our society. They're bad for companies. What Mm -hmm. I have seen in my work is that when companies see people as a cost to be minimized, and they have too few people on the selling floor or on, you know, restaurants or in hotels or, or or whatever have you, and pay them as little as possible, then you end up having high employee turnover. Mm-hmm. which drives mm-hmm. so many problems, which drives low productivity, low sales, low profits, which then puts companies in a vicious cycle. So hmm. bad jobs are bad for companies as well.
2: There's a, a, a really troubling statistic that one in eight workers is so disenchanted by how they're treated by their companies that they actively work against the interests of their employers. Huh. One, that is a startling statistic. I mean, just yeah. think of the waste associated with that. That this is a big economic issue, as a, in addition to being a big social issue.
0: So it sounds like we're we're talking about like service and retail jobs are sort of by definition bad jobs. And Warren, let me turn back to you. Uh, how do you find the companies that you want to invest in, and how how do you define a good job? And you know, and and can these retail jobs be good jobs? It's not just retail jobs.
2: It's not just hospitality jobs. Our biggest employment categories where we have the biggest need is actually in healthcare today.
0: Yeah, care work, sure. Everyone
2: needs a million more home health workers in the next decade. And home health is a really challenging job that you know, most folks who have options don't choose to go into that work. But if you look at what actually drives a good job, we did a bunch of research at Two Sigma Impact on this topic and found that there were really four key drivers of a good job. Uh, the first is fair treatment. And so that includes the pay, that includes scheduling, that includes benefits. Mm. And that is very important. Um, but but it's interesting, it, you know, we're at an all-time high of people quitting right now. And if you actually ask people why they quit, toxic workplace, yeah. 10 times more important as a driver than pay is.
0: Hmm.
2: But in addition, there's a promising future. So the ability to grow in your mm. role, to actually have a future and an opportunity to make more money over time if you progress. The third thing, is a sense of psychological safety, if you uh, share uh, ideas for how to make your job better and how to make your company better. And the last is a sense of mission and purpose. Hmm. A view that um, what you're doing actually has some value in and of itself. When those four things, fair treatment, promising future, psychological safety, and a sense of purpose, when those things exist, people uh, not only describe themselves as having a good job, But they also perform better on the job and the company is more innovative and the company grows faster and the company is more profitable. And so companies are increasingly looking to find ways to create better jobs inside of their companies. It's not only about paycheck. It's not only about this sort of zero sum view of, you know, whatever we pay our workers needs to come out of our pocket in some way.
0: So, same app, you know, are you seeing companies that want to invest in this, or 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 is this still kind of like a the beginning of a movement? And One of
3: the things that I want to say is that pay is absolutely not the only thing that drives a good job, right? Sense of purpose, mm. psychological safety, belonging, achievement—all those things make sense, and and pay doesn't also create high productivity necessarily, right? And it doesn't create mm. high satisfaction for for customers, but the absence of sufficient pay guarantees mediocrity. Mm. Sometimes Mm -hmm. when you look at what drives motivation, what drives engagement, you hear the purpose, belonging, achievement, you know, recognition, all these things, which are all important. But Mm -hmm. for those 53 million Americans who don't make enough to make a living, put food on the table or a roof over their head, pays everything. Because you don't make Mm -hmm. enough money to take care of your family, then there are all sorts of psychological, medical problems, physical problems, right? It's uh, Low pay is associated with uh, poor health. Low pay is associated Mm -hmm. with poor mental health. Low pay is associated with poor cognitive functioning. And those of us who make more than enough sometimes underestimate the importance of pay and we're not aware Mm -hmm. of how much it matters for workers. And that's what we see when we work with companies. When you look at why is there such high employee turnover? We find that if there's low pay, there's high turnover. That's, yeah. that's what we see when we work with companies. You know,
0: kind of the counter argument to that is the churn and burn culture. And you have a number of CEOs saying, I don't want people in jobs for very long. Not only is there this acceptance of crummy jobs, but this acceptance of high turnover. Um, that That's actually part of the business strategy of
3: some of these large companies. How do you counter that? When, when you create a system with high employee turnover, then you have an inhumane and uncompetitive system. There are so many of the best practices in business that you just can't do. You can't hire well. You can't train well. You have no time because your managers are fighting fires. When you operate with high employee turnover, you can't empower people to make decisions, right? You can't mm-hmm. do any of those best practices that we know about work design. And you can't create a high performance system. So it's like management malpractice, right? Mm-hmm. To not be mm-hmm. able to implement the best practices that have been around for a long, long time. And, and I think, Bridget, Hidden in your question is the thing about Amazon operating with 150% turnover and how can it be good? One Mm, way to think mm -hmm. about this is 100 years ago, Henry Ford used to operate with, you know, 200% turnover. And what we found even in manufacturing is that using people as interchangeable parts and creating the jobs for robots, not humans, was not the best way to make cars. Right, Warren. I'm just wondering: Do you see that management
0: malpractice as well, and 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 how do you how do you shift that well, mindset? Of course,
2: we see it. I mean, my my, my former partner, uh, Governor Deval Patrick, used to talk about this sort of endemic short-termism mm. in many companies. Mm. And there's a lot of structural reasons why that's the case. I mean, folks trying to make their quarterly earnings—they're under pressure. And if you if you're under pressure to make your earnings next quarter, one of the fastest ways to get there is cut costs, cut cut yeah. labor
0: cut your now, fast yeah. It's a
2: short-term strategy that gets you to your quarterly earnings, but it's not a long-term strategy. One of the nice things about being a private equity investor is you know, we have longer time horizons. Mm-hmm. Know, we're thinking usually in terms of four, five, six years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have both the, the privilege and, and the responsibility to make investments in our companies that are going to take that time frame into account. And so we believe we have a responsibility in our companies to be active owners and to support management's investment in people. The economy Mm -hmm. of the future is definitely going to be one with more technology and more robots. But what we've seen is that technology paired with motivated and skilled humans, that's where it works best. Mm -hmm. So, a Mm -hmm. lot of what's behind what you describe,
0: Bridget, is is, is a short-term perspective.
2: um, And and we feel it's our responsibility as active owners to think about things in in, in years, not, not months, not quarters.
0: So but so many people do think about things in terms of the, that short term return on investment and you know the the earnings reports come out and it's a big headlines and the jobs report comes out and that's a big headlines and nobody's looking at how many of those jobs are good jobs you know so that so the whole system is geared around this kind of faulty way of looking at work what needs to happen for more companies to take this longer term view, for companies to see workers as more than just a line item to, to cut so that they can look good for their earnings reports every quarter?
3: I think one of the first things we need is we need more people like Warren who are believers, right? Mm. One of the reasons, um, short term thinking is, of course, the source of the problem. But the other source of the problem is that a lot of executives don't believe that good Mm. jobs could be good for companies. They don't believe there could be a return on their investment in people. They don't believe in workers. They have operated in settings with high turnover and they have seen people not caring, not being productive, not because those people are not competent or lazy, but because of the structure in which they operate. But executives have decided that these workers are lazy. These workers Mm -hmm. are incompetent. So I think what it takes first is to believe in workers, in ordinary people being able to do extraordinary things and believe in the good job system. And it's not just pay, it's not just better schedules. It's a whole system that has designing the work for high productivity, high contribution. So I think the first thing is like we need believers. And then the second is we need people to be able to prioritize this over other initiatives because Mm. it's just too easy to do other things in the short term, to 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 show higher earnings, higher sales growth, and we need more leaders to be able to prioritize this. And it's not about prioritizing workers; it's about prioritizing competitively how to win with customers and adapt to changes in the environment. View this as a business problem, Warren. I'm I'm seeing you nod your head, and
0: I've got like I'm a believer playing in my head. It's, it's interesting
2: what, what Zena mentions. More people who believe because when you talk about workers, a lot of times. What you see is what you get. Mm. I believe workers are lazy and you should try to pay them as little as possible and you see them as automatons. That's often what you're going to get back because when you're treated that way, it's hard to be motivated. And by the way, when you tell workers, you know, your chief goal is to drive shareholder value for a bunch of shareholders you've never met, that's not a very motivating idea either. Mm. Um, and so I think there has to be an investment in the thinking, uh, you know, management uh, teams who actually look at workers and say, we actually care about them. We actually want to listen to them. We actually want to motivate them. One of the things I've found, though, is a lot of investors and a lot of management teams actually want to invest in people, hmm. um, but they don't know how. Mm-hmm. Um, and they feel under this, short, you know, this pressure of short-termism, and they feel like they're going to get punished if they invest in people. No one ever punishes. No investors ever punish a management team for investing in technology, right. or building a factory. Everyone understands there's a return on those investments. But with people, we assume it's a zero-sum game. Any dollar we give to a worker is a dollar we're not giving to an investor. And that's just plain false thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one, of the, one of the highest returns on investment that you can make is in training people. We, we know this because we own a business called Penn Foster, which is a, the um, country's largest online vocational training business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and for, for about $800, Penn Foster can take a worker... Um, that's been working flipping burgers or in some other uh, uh, low-wage retail job, and we can get that person into a middle-income job that has skills and a career path like pharmacy technician or nurse's assistant. There's all kinds of things that with a program that costs $800 where you can double your earnings in in Mm -hmm. a year. So What we're seeing now is companies increasingly are investing in training. They're trying to figure out how to do it inside, inside their companies. They're increasingly thinking about investing in people, but they don't have great metrics. And they don't have great tools to explain these things to their investors. Mm. And so, one of the reasons why we talk so much about good job definitions is that we want to help people have a framework to think about those investments. You know, Under what conditions is your workforce truly an asset at a company versus a liability? And so, we're working really hard on measurement so that mm-hmm. we can actually make the case more clearly to the folks behind the management teams, to their boards, that this is important and there are ways of doing it that actually add value over time.
0: Hmm. It's interesting. There's another movement as well to, like, come up with a good jobs measurement. They talk about equity, respect and voice sort of from the worker perspective. Uh, Zainab, I'm wondering if you can, can you give an example of a company that went from, say, bad jobs to good jobs or a retail company that has good jobs in a way that many of our retail stores here are not good jobs?
3: Yeah, so I'll give examples of both Costco as an example, because it's probably the most well-known company. The median wage at Costco right now is around $25 an hour versus (laughs) the median wage in retail, which is around $13 an hour. Right, Costco offers the lowest prices, high quality merchandise, and has created amazing value for their shareholders. And and their employee turnover as well be below the industry average. their employees there for a long, long time. So that's one of the examples of a in retail. And Mud Bay was a company with two percent profit margins. Mm -hmm. They sell products for pets, uh, dogs and cats, Mm -hmm. and people go to their stores to ask about their pet's health. So their employees need to be knowledgeable about the products that they sell and the solutions that they offer. Mm
1: -hmm. And they Mm -hmm. had
3: always thought that we should pay below market for our employees and then have some incentives for them to work harder. But they were operating with high employee turnover. Mm -hmm. And high employee turnover was very problematic for them because they do consultative selling. So 49% turnover was not doing it for them. And they started this good jobs journey and they ended up raising pay 24%, increasing the percentage of people who work more than 30 hours a week and hence have have health benefits from Mm -hmm. 65% to 82%. Wow.
0: This
3: is all at a company with 2% profit margins and the end results for them was they are winning with their customers. They have higher same store sales growth than they had before. They -hmm. have higher productivity and they have a lot more satisfied customers and they are a lot stronger now as a company. So Mm -hmm. it is possible to change even if you didn't start out as a high pay, low turnover type of setting.
0: So let me throw it out to both of you. It's like you've talked about this world of where we don't have to accept bad jobs. How do we get there? You know, and we've had workers on talking about how important that they have a sense of voice and care workers who are beginning to organize. Policymakers are talking about making sure that the safety net will be bouncier to catch people if if we have a future where there isn't as much work. How do we get to a better future where there are good jobs, where there is better sort of work and well-being for everybody?
3: I mean, everybody needs to do their part. Policymakers, I mean, higher minimum wages, scheduling legislation, you know, our tax system. You get credits for investing in technology, but not in workers. Right, um, yeah. Business leaders, we need more courageous leaders. Who are willing to make a bet on people. It's not a high risk bet. Yes, it takes time, but it is not brain surgery and other companies have done it. So we need courageous business leaders who see people as a source of growth, as a source of high productivity and high revenue. And I think we also need to change business education so that we don't teach our students just to make financial decision making in isolation, which moves toward cutting corners and we need to teach a systems view in business education. So Warren, some
0: vigorous nodding I'm seeing in your Zoom square.
2: I'll just say that I remember when I was back in business school, the one class on business ethics that we were asked to take, it taught us how to stay out of jail. You know, that was kind of the basic theme. Hmm. Um, It didn't help us to to look at companies in a 360 way and think about the long-term value of investing in people. That was not part of the curriculum. I think increasingly, thankfully, it is thanks to people like uh, like Zainab, uh, but we're at a really interesting moment right now. a really big crisis in our workforce economy. We've got record levels of people quitting. Everyone asks, you know, "What's behind the Great Resignation?" And the answer is most jobs suck. People are not <laughs> rushing back to, to jobs yeah. uh, that are you know that, that, that don't suit their needs. Yeah. Um, but we also have a, a record level of job openings uh, out there, and we've got companies across the board not just in retail, but also in healthcare, also in technology. Everywhere you look, companies are short of workers. Mm-hmm. So we at Two Sigma Impact are trying to figure out how to create good jobs inside of companies mm-hmm. um, and how to help companies to see workers in a different light. And I always come back to these four criteria for a good job, which are the fair treatment, promising future, psychological safety, and a sense of purpose. When we create those conditions inside of companies, we see great results. Mm -hmm. And when we fail to, we often find ourselves paying the price because in private equity, we're long-term owners. And long-term owners now, I think, are beginning to see the light that not just for society, but for our companies. Investing in people is part of the way to get to a better future.
0: Warren Valdmanis. He's a private equity investor and a partner at Two Sigma Impact. Check out his recent TED Talk, What Makes a Job Good? And the case for investing in people. And in conversation with Warren, we also heard from Zenip Tone. She's the author of The Good Job Strategy and a professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management. Earlier this episode, we heard from Connecticut Congressman Jim Himes. He chairs the House Select Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness and Growth. This season on Better Life Lab, we've taken a close, hard look at the future of work and well being in America. However you want to look at it, we've got work to do. And for some promising approaches and fresh insights, I'd encourage you to check out any of the earlier episodes this season that you might have missed. And thank you so much for joining us this season on Better Life Lab. For more resources on fairer, healthier work, go to newamerica.org. Click the link for Better Life Lab. On behalf of myself and my producer, David Schulman, many thanks for joining us for our new season. Please review us on Apple Podcasts if you like the show. Better Life Lab is produced by New America in partnership with Slate. Special thanks to Alicia Montgomery at Slate for all her work with us. Our podcast is sponsored by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is committed to improving health and health equity in the United States. In partnership with others, RWJF is working to develop a culture of health rooted in equity that provides every individual with a fair and just opportunity to thrive, no matter who they are, where they live, or how much money they have. For more information, visit www.rwjf.org. For Better Life Lab, I'm Bridget Schulte.